Well, if you have a Bible, turn to Romans 2. We're going to continue our series in Romans, and we're going to look at the whole chapter of uh, Romans 2 uh, this morning. And there's a lot here, so um, I know I won't do justice to it all, um, but I think there's some really important things God wants to say to us through Romans uh, chapter 2. So let's read that together first. Romans 2, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you to be on the screen as well. Romans 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself? that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law are also perished without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are the righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even accuse, excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, uh, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others do not teach yourself. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor, abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law? For, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcised uncircumcision be physically sorry, I lost my place. Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of God for us uh, this morning. I, I know we're all chipper after reading those passages, um, but I was studying this week and, and thinking about the, the, the heart, the essence, the, the what is Paul trying to kind of kind of do here? And I ran across this hypothetical letter that I thought expressed a little bit of what Paul's kind of hinting at here in Romans 2 with all of this condemnation and judgment language. Here's a, a hypothetical fictional uh, letter that I think encapsulates what Paul's doing here. D 
Dear Paul, I have just read the second half of Romans, chapter 1. I congratulate you on a vigorous, refreshing expose of evil. I agree with you that it is disgusting when people not only behave badly, but actually approve of bad behavior. It did me good to read your chapter. You'll be glad to know that I, for one, do not for a moment approve of those who practice these terrible things. On the contrary, I recognize them for the evils they are and agree that such people are without excuse. I look forward to chapter two, yours sincerely. Now, if you were around here last week, maybe you caught the hyperbole there, the sarcasm there, that chapter one of Romans begins with this, this beautiful picture of, of God's grace that, that the Apostle Paul understands that his mission his mission as, as God's missionary, his life is a picture of God's grace that there's no one that can become a Christian by, by mere willpower. It's nothing we've done, but it's a good gift that God has, has done to us. He talks about the righteousness of Christ, that it's by faith we are made right with God. But then in the second half of chapter one, he shifts to show kind of a comparing contrast of what unrighteousness looks like. All the evil, all the wickedness that we see in our own lives, but also in the world. Why things have gone and spiraled out of control in, in the universe. He, he kind of nails it down and says, yeah, it's all grace, but, but you need to hear the, the good news. But now you need to hear some bad news of why we are in this predicament. And so it would be easy for us to read the second half of, of Romans chapter 1 and just go, yeah, Paul, get them. Right. And we can do the, the kind of evangelical nod. Right. When you hear a, a sermon about sin and you're like hitting your spot, going, wish my brother was here to hear that. Right. You ever been there? Uh, and, and so it'd be really easy for us to read chapter one and, and kind of have the self-righteous kind of moralistic posture and go like, get him, Paul, get him, get him. But then Paul gets to chapter two. And Paul doesn't hold anything back. And that's kind of why we've, we've called this kind of series within the series. Uh, this, the gospels for everyone is because even, even the hardened, obvious sinner in chapter one, but now Paul shifts his focus, not just on the blatant, obvious sinner, but now to even people who are inside the camp, these Jewish Christians that know their Bible. Well, they know the commands of God. They know the traditions and yet he has a word for them and for our Gentile brothers as well. Because if you remember, I said in the first uh, week of the, the series, the first, first sermon, was, was there's this kind of mixture of, of people that have come into this Roman church. Jewish Christians have, have, uh, were, were pushed out in Rome because they were persecuted, but now they're coming back into the church. And these Gentile Christians are there, and now the Jewish Christians are going like, who are these people? They don't even know the Old Testament. They don't know the law. They don't know the promises, what, what's going on here, right? So you can imagine the, the conflict that's going on in the book of Romans, and that's why P uh, Paul is so anxious to get back to them and teach them and help them. But it would behoove us, it would be wrong for us to read chapter one and say, well, yeah, it's really sad for those people. But what about, what about us? And, and that's where, where, where Paul kind of moves into the, this idea, and I love what John Stott Calls, he calls them their moral criticizers. I'm good, you're bad. I have, I'm holy, you're not. And it's easy to condemn, it's easy to point a finger, but, but Paul's not going to let us uh, do that this morning as we look at Romans uh, chapter 2. Now, if you're familiar, Romans, just like a lot of the letter, most of the letters of the New Testament are letters. 
And so these letters would circulate around the community and they would actually get a, a piece of that letter, or the whole letter, and they would get in a, in a situation like ours, a public gathering, a worship gathering, and they would actually read this letter to the church. And one of the apostles or one of the teachers or one of the elders in the church would read the letter to the church. And one of the challenges that we have reading letters of the, the New Testament is that we only hear one side of the conversation. And so part of our work as understanding the scriptures is to say, can we, can we kind of figure out what's going on in this church? What's going on in this situation? What needs, what problems are being addressed? And so this morning, I want, I want to kind of frame this message, imagining that you and I have just received this letter from Romans and a teacher or apostle is getting up to read this thing to them. And, and I want us to, to begin to examine our own hearts and not just say, yeah, yeah, go get them, Paul. But to say, maybe I fall into this moral criticizer. Maybe I'm the one that's condemning myself because I think I'm better than everyone else. At least I'm not like those people. And so I want to ask three questions this morning, and I want to give you um, an illustration. Um, and, uh, and Joe, could you come here for a second? Because I just realized I forgot something. John or uh, Joe's going to do a one-man show. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I forgot something. Okay. So question number one, diagnostic number one, am I quick to point out the sins of others with little regard to my own? Am I quick to point out the sins of others with little regard to our, uh, my own? Look at, look at how Romans 2 begins. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things are yet to do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So, so Paul kind of frames the, the conversation uh, with, with this idea that, th that there's, there's a hypothetical. And again, he's not pointing out one person. He doesn't call them out by name or anything like that. Um, but, but he says... He says, hey, uh, therefore you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. So there's something going on in the church. There's a passing of judgment. There could be a reading of Romans 1 and going, how, God, how can these people be allowed in the church? Or how can this be going out in the world? And they're pointing the finger, going, look at these slobs. Look at these evil, sinful people. Yet Paul says, you're so quick to judge, you're so quick to condemn, and yet you do the same things. Paul also hints at it later, and if you go to, jump down to verse 17, really uh, hits the Jews, uh, Christ, Jewish Christians of, of the day in 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law? For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul's a little tongue-in-cheek on this. He's saying, hey, you all you who are, are trying to guide people into truth, trying to guide people towards God, trying to help them understand the, the, the law, the, the scriptures, aren't you breaking the commands just like everybody else? You're telling people not to steal, but you're stealing. 
You're telling people not to murder, but you're murdering in, in some ways. Why are you looking at everyone else's sins, but you're not looking at your, your own? Now, when you and I hear this, what we can kind of do is go, yeah, but Ryan, I mean, I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a murderer. I mean, you could hear even the Jewish Christians of that day kind of going, well, we just read Romans 1. Like, that's not us. But here's what's something fascinating about Romans 1, that Romans 1 doesn't just deal with the overt sins that are very, very obvious. It also deals with motivations of the heart. If you jump back to Romans chapter 1, notice what it says in, in verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now, if you look at that list, there are things that are very overt. There are things that are very obvious. But Paul's also dealing with the reality of sin is also the motivations of the heart that, that we can be ruthless. We can be faithless. We can, we can actually have inside of us lust and anger and things that no one can see but God himself. And that's a little bit what, how Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just the overt sins that are very obvious for all to see and go, oh, geez, look at those people, right? But it's also the motivations of the heart. Do you remember Jesus in, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5? In Matthew chapter 5, as, as Jesus teaches through his, his famous Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about anger, notice how he talks about anger in Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to hell of fire. So he says, hey, the overt murder? Are you kidding me? Let's deal with your heart and the anger that's brewing inside there. Because you have never met someone who's murdered another person that doesn't have anger or contempt in their heart. That's why Jesus is the brilliant teacher. You don't go straight to murder without anger brewing inside there. Right? And so he goes on and he talks about adultery in, in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Adultery starts with the seed of lust. It's most people don't wake up and go, you know what? I'm just going to cheat on my wife or my husband today. It's a little look, a little too long, right? W whatever it is, it's, it's feeding that thing inside of us. It's the motivations of the heart. So Jesus, Jesus is going to kind of, kind of pull back the thread and say, Hey, it's really easy for all of us to be kind of external moral critics when we're not cheating on our wives and we're not murdering people, but that's kind of JV, Let's get to varsity and say, hey, what about that anger that's brewing in your heart? Hey, what about that, that lust that you haven't dealt with that's going to lead to all kinds of, of nastiness and, and, and things that you're going to be very embarrassed by? It's because God loves us that much. To not let us off the hook to say, well, yeah, but, but I don't, at least I don't do that. And, and that's a little bit of what, what Paul is doing here when he's talking about judgment. He's saying that we're all guilty of these things because it's not just the overt sins that everyone sees that makes the front page news, but it's even the motivations of our hearts that condemn us. 
So you may not ever take another life, but you can be filled with anger for the person that's wronged you. You can not forgive, right? You, you may not never be unfaithful to your, your wife but, or your husband, but you may look at pornography all day long and feed that fantasy. Well, at least I'm not unfaithful, right? It's because, and I don't want you to read even the Sermon on the Mount as just a bunch of laws and just like check off the box. Well, at least I don't, I don't do that. It's because God loves us and he wants to get after our souls and the inner workings of, of our souls and what leads to our actions, what leads to our behaviors. And if we're honest, we, we can honestly say and stand before God in good conscience and go, yeah, I am worthy of condemnation and judgment. Right? If you knew the, the inclinations of my heart, the intentions of, of my heart. We all stand judged before God, whether you're, you're a Jewish Christian who has the scriptures memorized or you're a Gentile Christian who doesn't know anything about the Bible, who just started going to church, who's just trying to figure things out. We all stand condemned because we're all in the same predicament. And I would say our, our culture is filled inside, outside the church with all kinds of critical moralizers, right? I'm a good, I'm a spiritual person. Right? I don't murder. I'm faithful. Right? I, 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 I try to save the environment. I drive a, a Prius. I recycle. Right? I vote for the right party. So, so that makes me a good person. Right? We, we set up all kinds of ways in which we, we feel righteous. We feel good. We're, we're, we're not those people. I, I love, um, I, I, I'm fascinated by, by politics, whatever side you land on. It doesn't really matter. It's not important here this morning. Um, but, but they've done these studies where, where those that, that would say, you know, it doesn't matter what, if you're Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, but but they'll, they'll say, you know, there's, there's this, this party and they're all about the poor, right? And they, they just want to help the poor and the under-resourced. And then you kind of like dig underneath some of the candidates and you realize they don't give anything to the poor. That it's all just talk, right? They gave... $20 to the under-resourced. Yet they're all about, it's all about the poor, right? This is my party. We're about the, the under-resourced. And you realize it's not really true. Or, or maybe it's those that are, that are, you know, it's all about family and it's all about family values. And then you, you look at their families and they're just an absolute train wreck. Why is that? Because none of us can even keep our own laws and our own standards consistently, can we? None of us, Right? I eat clean, right? We know you've gone through McDonald's drive-thru. We all have. They've sold eight bazillion burgers. You, you've bought them. Let's stop pretending that you only eat kale, right? They're good. Have you had their french fries? I don't know what's in them, but they're addicting. Okay, can we be honest? I know this is church, but... Let's be honest, right? We've all done it, right? We're, we're inconsistent, right? We're, we're, you, know, you know you've thrown that, that can of, of soda in the trash and didn't recycle it. Let's get honest, right? We've all done it. And so Paul wants to bring all of us to the center and tell us and show us that all of us stand condemned before God. All of us, can't, can't, we can't say, oh, well, sad for those people because I'm one of those people. I love what John Stott says. He says, we work ourselves up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people, while the very same behavior seems not nearly so serious when it, it is ours rather than theirs. Right? So the diagnostic question for us is, am I quick to point out the sins of others with little regard to my own? 
Like when you think about your life this week, last week, last month, last year, is it, is it pointing the finger at everyone else's, maybe even in your own family, but not looking at your own soul and going, I'm just as big a problem. Things I've said, thoughts I've had, uh, anger in my heart, lust in my heart, whatever it is. Help me, oh God. I don't want to be a critical moralizer because that's a death to joy in your soul and peace in your soul. Because it takes a lot of energy to be better than someone else, to hold up this, this sense of I'm worthy, I'm spiritual, I'm good. You'll get exhausted. And that's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus comes and says, take my easy yoke, put it on you, rest. You've been forgiven. You're my child. You have grace. You have mercy in your, your life. You can't keep up this pretension all the time that you're good and that you're honest. And that, that, that yes, you do fall short. And yes, you do need the grace of God. We all do. Some, some theologians have, have argued that, that Romans 1 and 2 are actually a picture of Luke 15, uh, the prodigal son, the older brother and, and the younger or the, I should say the younger and the older brother. That, that the, younger, the younger brother, you remember Luke 15, the prodigal son, famous story, right? Where the, the younger brother takes the inheritance and squanders it, runs off and, and, and ends up you know, with the pigs and, and comes running back home. And, and the father throws this party for this son uh, even after he squandered the, the father's inheritance. And then what happens? The father runs out to him. He embraces him. There's dancing. There's food. And here comes Mopey older brother dad what the heck man what the heck dude I've been good I've been I've done everything you asked me to I didn't leave like the younger brother and you're throwing him a stinking party what, what? I, I've been the good son I've been the faithful son and, and what does the father say it's one of the most striking it, I almost get in tears when I think about it son Everything I have is yours. It's always been yours. <laughs> right? And that's what the Father says to us. Because all of us have younger brother tendencies with the, the rebellious, I don't need God, I don't need his law, I don't need his, his commands, I'm going to figure out life on my own. But all of us have older brother tendencies, that I'm the good one, I'm the good sister, I'm the good brother, right? I keep all the commands, and yet you sit out the party, and when you see the younger brother come in and God showers his grace on him and forgives him, you just go like, hey, what about me? Where's my party? We all have those tendencies. It's in all of us. At least I don't murder. At least I don't commit adultery. Right? And so Paul, in his fantastic letter, just imagine us opening this letter and you're sitting there and you just begin to diagnose your own heart. Am I just quick to judge and condemn everyone else? Do I even see the, the sin in my own heart, in my own life? Right? And I'll tell you this. I've been around long enough. I'm not that old. I'm 40. But... Um, I've been around enough godly people to realize that the most godly, humble, joyful, peaceful Christians I know spend very little time pointing out the sins of others. And they talk a lot more about their own sins and their own need of God's grace. Right? I don't meet very many godly people that are just so quick to condemn everyone else because every day they go, the whole thing is grace. The whole thing is mercy. I can't believe God would even forgive me and love me the way he does. Now, I also don't want you to hear this either. 
Romans 1 is, is very obvious. Like, he's still calling out sin. We're, we're naming it, right? We're, we're not participating in it. We're not saying, hey, that sinful behavior is okay. We're not saying that at all. But is our reflex, our default mode to point out and not think about ourselves? Is that where we're going? Is that where we're headed? Diagnostic question two. Do you live a lifestyle of repentance for sins of commission, omission, and self-righteousness? That's a mouthful. Do you live a lifestyle of repentance for sins of commission, omission, and self-righteousness? As Paul kind of walks through this letter, notice what he says in 4 and 5. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent, <coughs> impenitent excuse me, heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is an interesting thought here by, by Paul, is that Paul is, is basically calling out a lot of the Jewish Christians that have come into the fold. They become Christians. They know the Old Testament really well. They know the promises. They know the covenants. But here's what Jewish people in that day would think. Because I'm part of this family, because we are the chosen people, I don't need to repent of my sin. I don't need to trust in Christ. I'm already in. I'm the holy one. I'm the chosen one, right? There's nothing I need to do. But that's where Paul's calling him out in verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So as they meditated on, as they thought about the kindness of God, the ways in which he was gracious to them, the way that Jesus came and he, he lived among them and died for them and rose for them, as they saw that, they should have been in a repentant mode. And yet they go, yeah, but I'm, I'm a Jewish. I'm already in. I mean, ethnically, nationally, I know the promises. It's the Gentiles that they need to repent, right? And he's going, no, 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 no. You, you missed the plot, <laughs> right? It, it's not by, by your external piety. It's not by, by, oh, by naming, oh, because you're circumcised or not circumcised. It's not by who you grew up with or what family, right? We can all fall into this, right? Well, I grew up in a Christian home, and, and I have an ESV study Bible, and I go to this particular church, right? And I, and I go to this Christian bookstore, and I, I say Christian things, and I wear, you know, the Lord's Gym t-shirt, and so that means I'm in. And maybe if you grew up in the 90s, I only listen to DC Talk, because I'm a Jesus freak. You can Google that if you don't know who, D, who uh, DC Talk is. One of the greatest rappers of all time. <laughs> or not. So we think the external, we think the people that we hang with, the community that we're a part of, somehow brings us in. But he says, as you think about God's patience, that he didn't blow you off the universe for your sin, that every single day that you're still here, you better see his kindness and mercy and grace and his love that would lead you to repentance. To say, I'm sorry. Thank you, God, for your mercy. Thank you, God, for your Grace. So, so he's laying us bare. Now, I, I mentioned sins of commission and omission because I think that's important because this is where the, the self-righteous, the moral, uh, criti critical hearts will get into trouble. Is that sins of, of commission are, are sins I do blatantly or habitually. They're obvious things, right? The things that, that God commands us not to do, but we do them, right? We, we, we engage in them. Um, an example of this, and again, I'm, I'm just picking this randomly. Um, this isn't meant to just, you know, Say these sins are the worst ones and there's other ones, but um, 1 Corinthians 6. 
Paul mentions a few sins. This kind of highlights what, a, what you know, sins of, of uh, commission are about. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 10. Um, I should start at 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do, you, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of your God. So just these very plain, very obvious things, right, that, that people do that, that are sinful, right? And of course we repent, repent of those things. That's not who you were. You are a new creation in Christ. Those typically are the ones that we find ourselves not repenting of as much because they, they, they seem to be a little more obvious. But I think the, the sins of omission are the ones that we, I think, need to repent of a little more. It's, it's the failure to do what is right, right? J James 4, 17 talks that way. In, in James 4, 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So, so there's a lot of good things that we're called to. It's not just about, well, I, I, I didn't do the adultery thing, the murder thing, the stealing thing that are very obvious. But what about the things I neglect to do, the good that I'm called to do that I don't do, right? Okay, I may not commit adultery, but I, do I love my wife as Christ loves the church? Do I lay my life down for her? Do I serve her in that way? That, that could be a sin of commission, right? I might not speak ill of the poor. I might say, oh, just get a job. You know, what's your problem? But do I help them when they're in need, when there's a tangible need that I can meet? Do I do anything about it? James talks about that. Somebody comes to you and goes, hey, I don't have any clothes. I, I need some help. Like you just go, hey, I'll pray for you. He actually says that in James. How often do we do that? I don't have anything, but I'll pray for you. I mean, that's fine. But, but if there's a way I can meet that need, do I meet that need? Do I love my neighbor as myself? Do I love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? So, so it kind of lays us bare that there's all these kinds of sins. There's these blatant ones that we know are obvious, but there's these ones, these, these ones I'm not doing that I should be doing. You see where I'm going with this, right? We should live a lifestyle of repentance because we all fall short, don't we? We all fail to love God with all of our soul and strength and mind and heart. We all fail to love our neighbor as our Selves. There's things I'm avoiding, but there's things I should be doing that I'm not doing. So we don't want to take for granted the kindness of God that was always meant to, to lead to re re repentance and confession. Now, why do I talk about repenting of our self-righteousness? Well, that's kind of the, the heart of the whole, whole sermon. That, that Paul, even in verse 12, he kind of hints at that. He, he, in, 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 if you go back to Romans uh, 2, and as he kind of continues his argument in 12 and beyond, he says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So he's saying, well, you can have the law or not have the law, but if you don't do what it says, it doesn't really matter. There should be some fruit coming out of your life because of this faith, because of this trusting in Christ. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. 
He's saying that even those without the scriptures, even those without the gospel, that written on their hearts is what is right and what is wrong, so they'll be judged by those things. But you see, when we repent of our self-righteousness, we're, we're doing exactly what Paul's hinting at here is how often do I look at other people in their lifestyle and go, man, they need to get their act together, but I don't look at myself and go, I'm just like them. Whether I grew up in church or didn't grow up in church, whether I have you know, the ESV study Bible tattooed on my back, whether I have the whole Old Testament memorized or not, whether I'm just figuring things out, it's easy for us to point the finger and go, well, if they just were a little doctrinally pure, we wouldn't have all these problems. Or if they just would stop living this way, right? So easy to point the finger at other people, isn't it? Because we have all these categories worked out in our head. Well, this is too far, but this isn't too far. So, so we can be, um, we can point out, you know, very blatant sexual sins in our culture. But the fact that I'm a glutton and I covet over everything doesn't matter, huh? Too honest, <laughs> right? So, so we point out, well, look at them. Yeah, but, but, but the fact that I don't, I, I want all these things. I need a bigger house. I need more money, right? I need to build, build my own kingdom. That's okay. That's the American dream. But people that, 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 that sin sexually, well, shh, there's no place for them. The Bible won't let us do that. Sin is sin. There's bigger ones and smaller ones, but sin is still sin. We've all broken God's commands, and we're all under the wrath of God and need his grace and need his mercy. And so we all need to live a lifestyle of repentance of sins of commission and omission and our, even our own self-righteousness, when we see that little seed kind of creeping in, when I'm more concerned with pointing out everyone else's problems but my own, we need to lay that before God. Now, I have an illustration, and it was such a good illustration that I left it in my office and had had Joe go get it. But notice how Romans 2 ends. The last few verses. For circumcision, verse 25, indeed is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The best way to end a sermon is to talk about circumcision. <laughs> That's just where you need to go, most sermons. But there's something profound, <laughs> that was a joke, um, going on here. So let me illustrate this. Now, what kind of cereal is this? We got some Aldi shoppers, don't we? <laughs> now, to the naked eye, if you go to Aldi, right, and you're, you're going down the aisles, the wife has sent you to go to Aldi and get the cereal, I'm not thinking, this just looks like Honey Nut Cheerios, right? Honey Nut Cheerio fans? Fox? Aldi? Aldi fans? Matt Badgett doesn't shop at Aldi, by the way. Just like to publicly rebuke him. <laughs> He's too good for Aldi, he told me. <laughs> Honey Nut Cheerios. Both can be purchased at Aldi. 
Both look very similar, don't they? Don't they? It's not a trick question, people. This illustration is not going over well. <laughs> You're like, there's some deep, profound... No, they're not. They, they look very similar, right? But the price is very different, amen? Right? <laughs> now you're talking. Now, cereal companies have been doing this for years. If you grew up in the 80s or the 90s, if you went and said, Mom, I really want Cinnamon Toast Crunch, not that fake stuff, because it does taste different, doesn't it? If you eat a bowl of Honey Nut Cheerios, you eat a bowl of Aldi brand, there's a little difference, amen? You can tell, okay? You're not fooling us, Aldi, with your half bag of fake Cheerios. But to the naked eye and to the reality of it, and I think what Paul is saying here, he's obviously talking about Aldi and Cheerios, is that when you look inside and you pull out the product, even though the cereal companies are trying to pull a fast one on us to get us to eat their cheap cereal, is you can tell the difference. The box doesn't matter. What Paul's talking about with circumcision, it's very bizarre. Like, Paul, what? Jewish people were males on the eighth day would be circumcised to set themselves apart as God's people. Old Testament, Genesis 17, right? What Paul is saying here, it doesn't matter if you've been externally circumcised. It doesn't matter if you're part of the right team, the right group, the Jewish people, right, that, that know their scriptures backwards and forward. What matters is that you've been circumcised on the heart. It's not your outward appearance. It's not externals. It's not your piety or your religious practice. It's what's on the inside and what God has done on the inside. Paul brilliantly in, in Colossians chapter uh, 2 does an interesting thing because you need to end sermons with circumcision. It just makes sense. Colossians chapter 2, he uses the same language in verse 11 about Christ and the cross, and he ties it to circumcision. He says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of the flesh, God made alive together with him, having given us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This is set aside, nailing it to the cross. He dismissed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. I can't say that. Christ, in a sense, what's circumcision? Not to get too graphic. It's a cut, cutting off. It's a separation of skin. On the cross, Jesus was circumcised for us. He was cut off. He was put to shame. He was separated from us. So why? So that we could come in by his blood, by the shedding of blood. Circumcision was always about a shedding of blood. Blood needs to be shed. And if you've ever had boys and been in the hospital, it's a bloody mess. And so Paul uses that analogy and says, what matters is not what you have tattooed on you or what externally you do or how many times you go to church, but has your heart by the spirit been circumcised? Because the letter is the Old Testament, the laws, that can't transform you. Following the rules will never transform you, but it's the Spirit of God working in and through that gives us any chance to believe, even believe the gospel, but also to live it out as God would intend us. That the Spirit of God is a spirit of love. It's a love of God and a love of neighbor. And as that dwells in us, there's a new inclination, a new desire to love God with all our hearts, minds, souls, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. So the last diagnostic question simply is this. 
Am I trusting in the work of Christ and the Spirit which leads to obedience? Because in six, verse 6 and following, it hints at Psalm 62. It seems like Paul's talking about works and you know, our, 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 our faith relies on, you know, we're going to stand before God and, and we'll be judged by our obedience or by our works, which is, is all true. But the work that he hints at, I wish I had more time to explore Psalm 62 with you, but the work that he's talking about is, are you trusting, as the psalmist would say in Psalm 62, Jesus as your rock and your refuge? That's the work he's talking about. Are you laying your life bare before God and saying, I trust you, God. I trust you, Christ, for your work, for your life, your death, your resurrection, that my goodness, my righteousness, my life is hidden in you, and it's not by externals. It's not by morality. It's not by behavior. It's not about what church I go to or what kind of Bible I read or if I'm doctrinally pure or or the people I hang out with or the, the shows I watch or the music I listen to. Ultimately, my standing with you, my life with you is whether I'm trusting in the rock of my salvation and everything flows from that that's what paul is getting at here and it's so easy for us to condemn everyone else but the question i would want to pose to you and to me is not what does your behavior look like but are you trusting in the rock of your salvation namely jesus christ the righteous one who did what we couldn't do for ourselves who was cut off, who was circumcised for us. So whether we were circumcised or not, we could come in to the family of God by his grace and by his mercy. And so if you are a believer in Christ, there will be fruit in your life. Romans 2 says that. There, there's going to be this, this sense of, of faithfulness, of, of, of holiness, of wanting to honor God and glorify God. There's going to be a dying to the self-seeking heart that's always about me, myself, and I, the Holy Trinity. But it doesn't begin with our obedience. It begins with trusting in our rock and our refuge and everything else flows from that. But there should be fruit in our lives. There should be obedience in our lives, but that comes after. And for a lot of us, we've gotten that switched around. Maybe we've been told our whole lives, just, you're not a good person. You're never going to measure up. Maybe when you go through a hard thing, instead of running to Christ and, and receiving his grace and mercy, you run from him. Because I'm not worthy, right? If you knew what I did, you knew what I'm doing right now, there's no way God can accept me. Well, I want to tell you that the cross has outed you in a good way. He's outed all of us. That we all stand judged and we all stand condemned, but it's by his work that we're saved. It's by his work that we're free. It's by his work we're his, his children. He did it all. And, and you have to believe that because why in the world would he go to the cross if he's just like, oh gosh, what did I do? He was willingly going to lay his life down for his enemies, you and I. He did it gladly. He's not shocked by anything you've done or will do. Right? But a lot of us don't believe that. So we haven't been in church for years. That's why we haven't read our Bible. It's just because we think God's just this angry sycophant that's just ready to just heap judgment and condemnation on us. And, and yes, we all deserve that. But we need to run to the mercies of Christ. We need to run to him and receive his righteousness, his mercy. So are we repenting of our quick need to judge others? Are we, are we repenting of sins of commission and omission and self-righteousness? Are we trusting in the rock of our salvation so 
every week we have this beautiful privilege to take the Lord's Supper together. And uh, before we take the supper uh, this morning, I think it would be appropriate just to lay some of those things we talked about this morning before God. Um, he would actually encourage us to do that. Um, are, are there sins of omission, commission? Is there self-righteousness? Am I the one who's just quick to judge everybody? Just like, look at them well, you know, and get their act together. Can, can we have the courage, maybe the Holy Spirit's nudging you to do that, to lay those before the Lord, before you take the supper? Is there someone in this room, is there someone in your life that you need to reconcile with, you need to forgive? Maybe you can't do that because you think you're better than them or you think you're more spiritual than them or more or good and they're bad and, and you can't seem to do that, whatever it may be. Wherever the Holy Spirit is just pricking on your heart, just, I would just encourage you just to lay that before God before you take the supper. And the way we take the Lord's Supper together is we, we have two lines in the front. We break off the bread, we dip it in the cup. We have some allergy-free, gluten-free bread there uh, as well if you need that. Um, if you're not a believer in Christ, you're not trusting in, in God as your refuge and your rock, we just ask you to stay seated. We have some prayers in the, in the city life you can think on, reflect on. If you'd like to talk more about, about that, I'd love to, to talk what it means to be a follower of Christ. So we're here, so we exist, and we, we want you to know this God that we talk about and preach about and live for. But I just want to encourage you to do that because there is joy to be found. It is exhausting to be a moral critic. It is exhausting to be the one who's the theology police, the morality police, the fill-in-the-blank police, but to rest in the goodness and yoke and grace of Jesus is where life and joy, peace are found. Let us pray. Father, um, you are a good God. And uh, it would be easy for us this morning to hear a sermon like this and, and just say, man, I, w I wish my family member was here to hear this. I wish fill in the blank was here to hear this. But I pray by your grace and by your mercy, oh God, that you would speak to us personally. Speak to us collectively as a church family. That we want to be a church that, that isn't quick to pounce, quick to judge, quick to condemn everyone out there. But, but ultimately we would look first to ourselves and say, where are those places where I see sin, where I see judgment and condemnation, where I see self-righteousness and hypocrisy, God? May you weed those things out of this body in our, in our own souls. Because it is exhausting to be judged. And you're a good judge and you're a wise judge and you're, you're gracious and kind. I pray your kindness would lead us to repentance. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.